Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Could the 70-foot, 50-ton prehistoric shark known as Megalodon still be alive somewhere in the depths of the ocean? What are the implications of this year's discoveries in the Pacific Ocean's Mariana Trench? Next time you're out fishing off Block Island or Cape Cod, will you see a 7-foot dorsal fin headed your way? Well, hello and welcome to the 650th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I'm Paul, and those move-over Jaws questions are leading to our great guest today. Ben uh, is still on his movie shoot, uh, so he is obviously not with us, and he probably is, he's going to be headed for Alabama in his exotic life as a sound uh, audio engineer for the films uh, next uh, week as well uh, for a different film. So anyway, so he should be back in two weeks. All right. So today we bring you an old friend who hasn't graced our airwaves in several years, but who continues to terrify galeophobiacs, I believe that's how it's pronounced, Everyone with his, uh, I should say everywhere with his five best-selling books about super sharks, and many other books as well. And we welcome your phone calls. It's 800-449-1240 from anywhere in the U.S. or Canada, uh, 401-766-1240 locally, or email paul at behindtheparanormal.com. Now, we seldom have fiction writers on the show, even though this is the second week in a row that we have. But if they know the historical and scientific background of what they're writing about, that's another kettle of fish, or sharks in this case. Dr. Steve Alton is the New York Times best-selling author of the blockbuster Meg, that's his, uh, in the lovable character Carcarod and Megalodon series of novels, which began in the 90s with Meg, a novel of deep terror, one of my favorite books, and has just... Seen its fifth title, Meg Night Stalkers, just released last month. Uh, Steve has written 10 or 12 other books on different subjects, and there are a number of uh, movies either having been made or in the planning stage. He'll tell us about that. A native, a native of Philadelphia, Steve did his undergraduate work at Penn State, holds a master's degree from the University of Delaware, and earned his doctorate in education at Temple University. His website, stevealton.com, Steve, uh, A-L-T-E-N.com. Steve, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. Well, it's good to talk to you. Okay. So uh, let's get right into this. Uh, take the plunge, so to speak. Tell us about the Mariana Trench and the recent discoveries there. Well, the Mariana Trench in relation to the fact that in the, uh, the book series, Meg, uh, the hero finds the Megalodon still inhabiting the deep waters of the Mariana Trench. And for your listeners who don't know, the Mariana Trench is the deepest point on the planet. It's seven miles down, but it's also 1,550 miles long and 40 miles wide on average. And it remains unexplored uh, until very recently. And the, the recent expeditions that you're referring to uh, have sent down drones into the seven-mile depth, which, you know, the pressure is so amazing down there that man's not going to venture down too often. And they found not just hydrothermal vent fields, as I predicted back in 1997, but uh, life, life forms. They found one shark. They found a shark species that they named the ghost shark because it, because it uh, sort of glowed. Really? Uh, that's incredible. One, before we continue, I have a, a personal, well, not a personal question, but one that has, has kind of bugged me for many years. I remember in the early 60s, and, and, and I'm sure it was the Mar Mariana Trench, in the early 60s, two guys went down, because long before there were drones, 
two scientists uh, went down in a bathyscape, as they were called at the time, sort of a diving bell or whatever ancient uh, terms were used, and they went down about, and correct me if I'm wrong, about 35,000 feet. And um, they nobody ever seems to have gone back, and, and rumor had it that something frightened them. Now, I don't, I don't think that's necessarily the case, but do you know anything about that? I mean, what... What was that about? What did they find, and, and did they go back? I, I, I don't think anybody ever did. There were two best escapes. One was American, one was French. Uh, the Trieste was one of them, I believe. Right, the Trieste, yeah. And and they went, bath escapes basically go straight down and go straight straight back up on no exploration. Well, I think what probably frightened them was the depths, because 35,000 feet, the depths are about 16,000 pounds per square inch. Yeah. So that's pretty scary. The, the one other manned expedition that went down there, I say expedition, but really just a, a trip down to the bottom and back, was uh, James Cameron. Really? He did it, uh, the the director? The movie director? Yeah. Really? No, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, he, uh, he was uh, infatuated with it since his uh, exploration of the Titanic. and decided he was going to go down and created a, designed a submersible that basically took him down and bounced around the bottom for a, about a quarter of a mile and then came back up. Uh, he had a couple minor problems down there, but you got to give the guy credit for having the guts to go down. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Uh, here in Rhode Island, of course, we have uh, Bob Ballard, um, who was right. the discoverer of the Titanic, and our station uh, manager here at ON 1240 works with him from time to time uh, through NOAA. I don't know the details, but it sounds pretty pretty romantic and exciting, actually. So um, anyway, uh, Steve, why do you think Megalodon could have survived in that area or elsewhere? Is it because warmer temperatures because of these vents, or what, what's, what's the story on that? Well, I think the warmer temperatures would have attracted them. I, think, I don't think uh, the temperature of the ocean, whether cold or warm or freezing, affects a creature the size of megalodon anyway, just like the great white shark. They have a blood vessel system called gigantothermy, which allows the uh, moving muscles to pump blood into the extremities so that, that these bigger sharks are actually warm-bodied, not warm-blooded, but warm-bodied, so their, mm. their interior temperatures are pretty warm. But, um, you know, there's a lot of theories about why megalodon disappeared, you have to understand that Megalodon was around not the age of the dinosaurs, but around about 30 million years ago, up until fairly recently, 10,000 years to 100,000 years, depending upon which so-called expert you ask. But is, you have to understand that, uh, I'm sorry? I'm sorry, that is very recent. In, yeah, in it terms really, of, uh, means that Megalodon and man were on the earth at the same time. Yeah. But, uh, you know, why did these creatures disappear? Some say it was because the last ice age turned the temperatures colder. Some say it affected the uh, the megalodon's number one uh, prey, which is whales. I, I don't buy into any of that. There were plenty of whales still around, and, and I don't think the colder temperatures affected them at all. I think what happened, though, was the other theory, which was the evolution of orca. You know, once orcas became around, you know, orca one-on-one can't take down a megalodon, but... but 12 or 14 or 30 on one, they certainly can. So the orca hunted in the megalodon nurseries, which were shallow nurseries, but they also, you know, chased the adults into the deeper waters. And and that's the theory behind the whole Meg series, that the megalodon went into deeper water. Okay. 
Uh, we have a question already uh, here that came in by email from Julio in uh, New York. And uh, Julio wants to know uh, about the, he says, uh, the, the, there, okay, the, uh, the size of the megalodon's body, and then he says, would that affect the pumping of the heart and otherwise make it difficult for it to live, or in being in the water, would it make it easier uh, for the creature to survive. I think what he's getting at is that the larger um, someone is or a, a creature is, there can be problems with the organs because of the nature of this planet and the gravity, and that things only should get to a certain size. I mean, it's, so I guess what he's asking is that uh, would it have been, would its size have been a problem for the survivability of Megalodon or its presence in the water would have mitigated that? Not at all because... Uh First of all, in the water, you know, you're not affected by gravity and you're not affected by pressure if you're a fish because the water moves through you, unlike mammal, which has air pockets. You know, fish have no problem with water pressure. Okay. Uh, also, the megalodon was probably the most fearsome predator ever to have existed on our planet. You know, this was the most dominant species of its kind of, of its time or any other time. So everything in, in its, within its anatomy was geared up toward functioning as a... Uh, a top predator that includes tart muscle. Okay. Well, thank you, Julio, for the question. Uh, the That question does bring up a question in my mind, and that's that, of course, the larger a creature is, the more it has to eat. What did Megalodon eat, and where w- would the, such food come from today? Well, the, uh, the short answer is anything at one. I was going to say, but, if you hadn't cracked that joke, I would have. But its favorite was were whales, and there's plenty of whales at its time, and there are plenty of whales, that, you know, obviously around today. So uh, food wouldn't be a problem for a megalodon. Okay. Well, there were times when there weren't a lot of whales. I'm thinking particularly the 19th century, the 18th century. I guess there were in certain areas. So that leads into the next question. Uh, have there been any sightings reported in modern times of something that could be Megalodon. There have there have been repeated sightings, but you have to realize that megalodon is a fish, and, and fish don't necessarily have the surface to let you know that they're around. I mean, we're so used to the movies which show us that telltale dorsal fin cutting the surface and scaring the bejesus out of everybody. But a megalodon that was inhabiting the mid or deeper waters, which remain unexplored. I mean, only five percent of the entire ocean has been have been explored by man, and less than one percent of the depth. So, you know, if if these creatures, and I'm not saying there's an abundance of them, but I'm saying that if these creatures adapted to life in the mid-water, to deeper waters, there'd be no reason for us to see them. Okay. Well, that's true. We, we know more about outer space than we do about inner space, as it were, the seas. And I, I think that's true. Okay. At what depth? Did, suppose you have a garden variety megalodon in, you know, about, uh, say, Five ten million years ago, or, or, or less, what uh, what depth would 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 they be living in? Uh, I'm I'm sure they were in all depths. Uh, since they hunted whales, they probably surfaced a lot because whales are mammals and they're air breathers, and so you have to come to where the whales are. But um, you know, we find megalodon teeth in all depths. Okay. The shallows that, or places that used to be shallows, like in the rivers of the Carolinas and Georgia, or uh, the depths of the Mariana Trench even. The, okay. the uh, HMS Challenger pulled up a lot of megalodon teeth off the bottom of the Mariana Trench. Were they global? In other words, Atlantic and Pacific? 
Yes. Okay. Absolutely. All right. Um, <clears throat> now, one of the questions that arose in my mind too was uh, the uh, changing depths and the, the pressures. You, you mentioned uh, sixty thousand pounds per square inch on that bathyscape in the early sixties in the Mariana Trench. Um, <clears throat> would they be able to adapt? To the degree that they could surface, or they could, uh, uh, you know, the day after that, be down several miles down with, with the tremendous pressure of water that, that occurs at that depth. Or does the, uh, as with some species, does the their, their inner body pressure compensate somehow? In other words, are they are they that adaptable as far as pressure is concerned? Well, again, you have to realize that the only thing that pressure affects is is uh, an air pocket. Right, well, that's true. Man yeah. in our in our sinuses and our cavities and our, our air cavities and our lungs. It affects submarines because submarine is essentially an air cavity. But with fish, they don't have any air pockets. They don't have any air cavities, so the pressure doesn't affect them. Okay. All right. So tell us a bo- more, if you would, please, Steve, about the uh, the discoveries made in. This is only just this past few months, I understand, uh, at the bottom of the Mariana Trench. Uh, what water temperature do they create, and what other other kinds of creatures? You mentioned the ghost shark. What other kinds of creatures were discovered there, are, and and how do they differ from previously discovered uh, geothermal vents, say in the Atlantic, or do they differ? Well, first, well, first you have to have a little perspective here. Um, prior to, uh, I think it was uh, in the 1970s. Uh, the scientific view upon the bottom of the ocean was that no life existed. And the reason that scientists felt that way was because, A, we hadn't been down there to explore it, and, B, because sunlight can't penetrate beyond about 1,200 feet down. And so the only type of energy transportation for, for creatures or you know, life on the planet that man knew about was uh, getting energy from the sun, photosynthesis. Now, once the Alvin Submersible was created and we actually went down there to explore, we found abundance of life down there, and all beginning from hydrothermal vents. So you have these vent fields that pump 700-degree Fahrenheit water full of minerals into the ocean, which is probably where life first came to exist on this planet, is microbes. And the hydrothermal vents created a whole new life uh, based upon chemicals in the water or chemosynthesis. So now you have a whole new, uh, you know, series of events happening at the bottom of the ocean that create life, and now we know for a fact that life actually began at the bottom. Of the ocean. All right, so we have an ent- entire ecosystem that is not whose biology is not based <clears throat> on the sun as ours is, and that shocked everyone because we tend to be very homocentric, I think, uh, anthropocentric. So, <clears throat> okay. So uh, we, we've set up the background here. Now, why don't you go through each... I, I know you've written a bunch of other books. We'll give you a chance to talk about that later. But your five Meg novels, tell us, please, if you could, a basic outline of each one, you know, as much as you feel you can, and uh, what science they are based on. Well, the first book, Meg, a novel of deep terror, was published in 1997. And, uh, but since then, last year, I rewrote the entire book because I had a, a prequel called Make Origins that, I, that wasn't published other than an e-book. And, you know, it was just an 80-page book, so it didn't warrant publishing it as a separate book. But what I wanted to do is go back and rewrite the book anyway and expand it, so, and I wanted to put Make Origins at the beginning of it. So the new Make book out, which has a surfer 
surfing a 60-foot wave that has a megalodon coming out of it. Uh, that's a brand-new book. And I was able to go back and add the origins to it as a prequel, and I had to rewrite the entire book because the writing 20 years ago didn't match the writing of now. Hmm. So uh, I expanded the book, rewrote the ending a little bit, expanded the characters, changed some things around. So it's in the, the newest Meg book is actually the first book because it's been entirely rewritten. I see. Uh, also, so you've changed the science as well to uh, or updated it. Uh, updated it a little bit. That's funny. I'm doing the same thing with <clears throat> the book I wrote in the same year. <laughs> That's, I'm working on that now, although it's not about sharks. Okay. And uh, what about the um, the other three? Uh, the other four. The the second book was the trench, which uh, the takes trench, place yeah. mostly in the Mariana Trench. Uh, the third book was Make Primal Waters, which is based upon. Uh, uh, sort of uh, circles around a, a reality show that's taking place out in the Pacific. Uh, the fourth book, Meg Hell's Aquarium, has a whole new science to it because it takes place, goes back to the Mariana Trench, but in a place called the Pathalassa Sea. And back millions and millions of years ago, probably two or 300 million years ago, there was a place called the Pathalassa Ocean, which um, was a vast ocean of primitive creatures. The Pathalassa Sea and make primal waters I'm sorry, Meg Hell's Aquarium, the fourth book, uh, it actually takes place beneath the uh, the Mariana Trench sea floor, where there's a, 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 an ancient sea that has ancient creatures down there. And so we introduced all different new species into the Meg series, including Leoplorodon. Yeah, I remember we did a show on that. So that leads us up to the new release, Meg Night Stalkers, which is out this month in paperback. I'm, I'm sorry, in hardback. And Meg Night Stalkers picks up right after Meg Hell's Aquarium leaves off with the hunt for the Leoplorodon and uh, Bella and Lissy, which are the two Megalodon siblings that have escaped from the Tanaka Institute in Monterey, California. And that, that wasn't that made into a film? Uh, we're working on the first book, Meg. Um, uh, the movie was greenlit by Warner Brothers this summer. Uh, shooting begins on August 29th, and it's starring Jason Statham. And uh, the director is John uh, Turtletaub, who did the uh, National Treasure series. So oh, great, yeah. Big cast, big director, big budget. Should be a great movie. Well, if he needs a sound guy, Ben's, uh, Ben's available. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I'll let him know. Thank you. Ben would appreciate that. Um, okay, Steve, now on the issue of uh, other, other species... Okay, who, who are other survivals, as we might say? You mentioned uh, that just now. Uh, what about um, what about that? Has there been any other, such as like like Floridon, Has has there been any other evidence that you can see of survivals other than just Megalodon or possible survivals? I think Megalodon's probably got the best chance of still being out there. Leoplorodon was around, you know, closer to sixty to hundred million years ago, so it's less likely that something like that could survive. Uh, and was an air breather, too, huh? It was an air breather. Uh, but in, in the series, they're not air breathers. They've adapted to the depths by becoming fish. They have gills. Well, that's possible given enough time. Yeah, I mean, evolution has done that. I mean, yeah, to think that whales used to be wolf-like creatures that hunted on the land, you know, to right. evolve into a whale, I think you're going to accept that a Leoplorodon could have evolved gills. Mm-hmm. Did Megalodon have any, it's probably going to sound like a dumb question, but did Megalodon have any natural enemies? It did, uh, other than Orca, it did, uh, and, and one of them is in Night Stalkers, uh, 
Leviathan Melvilli, which is a, a recent discovery. It's basically an ancient sperm whale that was around the time of Megalodon, uh, only it had a lower jaw that was more like an orca. Huh. So it had a tremendous bite capacity, and it was a you know it was a top predator as well. So these two predators were around uh, the, at the same time. How big was that creature? Uh, that was about sixty feet as well. Oh, but it had a more powerful jaw. Had a much more powerful jaw than a sperm whale. It had it was sort of like a, a sixty foot orca. Wow, Sounds only like shaped a, like a sperm whale. A movie um, possibility there as well. Okay, <clears throat> excuse me. There, there are sometimes uh, reports of sea monsters, things of this kind. Uh, certainly, as you know, all over the world, people have seen strange creatures. Uh, here in New England, we had uh, uh, one seen in the vicinity of Cape Cod for years, and we've had done whole shows on that. And people even saw it on the land, supposedly. Um, do you think that at least some... <clears throat> of these reports could be uh, not necessarily megalodon, but one of these survivals. Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, people who are out on the water all the time see things that we normally don't see, and and there have been reports of giant sharks in the past, and there's been discoveries made by scientific teams of new creatures, new sharks, all the time, mm -hmm. like the the ghost shark in the Mariana Trench uh, about a month ago. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. I don't know what's my my voice today, but... Well, the, the thing I want to say, you know, about the Mariana Trench and things like that is that, you know, the worst science is science scientists who, or other so-called experts who claim something doesn't exist without having done the research. Yes. You know, if you explored the oceans and you made a determination that it doesn't exist, that's one thing. But if you don't bother exploring and you make, you know statements based upon circumstantial evidence, which isn't even evidence, just I haven't seen one so it doesn't exist. That's not science. Armchair science. And I had and I had a battle with somebody about that when Meg first came out because the LA Times hired a, a man to do a hatchet job on Meg as a reviewer, which was Richard Ellis. Oh, okay. And, and uh, Ellis was basically said, you know, they, they didn't like Meg because the publisher had put out a quote on the back of the book attributed to an L.A. Times reporter that said Jurassic Shark. Well, it was a great quote, and it was an accurate quote, but the L.A. Times Review, uh, they didn't like the fact that we were selling books based upon their quote. So they hired Ellis to do a hatchet job, and, and instead of criticizing the storyline, Ellis criticized the science, and he said that only in Alton's topsy-turvy world does warm water exist below cold water, which is a ridiculous statement. Uh, then he said that there are no Mar there are no hydrothermal vents in the Mariana Trench. <laughs> how does Richard Ellis know if there's hydrothermal vents in the Mariana Trench? Precisely. Based upon my research, it seemed to indicate that there would be because the whole area is a subduction zone. Sure. And uh, so it made sense that there would be hydrothermal vents down there. Well, I was exonerated in 2002, and I was exonerated recently. Not that I need to be because of fiction. But they, they did discover hydrothermal vents down there, so... Richard Ellis can kiss my tuchus. <laughs> I don't know if I ever told you this, Steve, but uh, <clears throat> many, many years ago I knew uh, several people at the uh, Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution here in New England. And there had been a research vessel, I, I would have to look up what the name was. Uh, it was in, over the, the Peru-Chile Trench off South America in the Pacific, which is, I believe, uh, the second or third 
deepest place, if uh, unless I'm wrong about that, but it was pretty deep. And there was some uh, an instrument. There was some, some reason they had lowered a very, um, well, I believe it was some kind of chrome steel or titanium hook, or, or some sort of metal. Uh, device down there. I guess the hook was was uh, carrying a, a sort of primitive instrument pack at the time, just to record temperatures and whatever. And something in the middle of the night grabbed the hook, which was several thousand feet down, or actually m- more than that, and it um, straightened it out. The whole ship shook. The vessel, I believe, was about 300 or so feet long, and um, when, when they hauled it up, the hook was pretty much straightened out. And uh, everyone, sort of the hair stood up on the backs of their necks, and they never did quite figure out what I mean. Today, they probably could have done some sort of DNA test or something. Um, I don't know if I ever told you that, but have you heard similar stories uh, from oceanographers or fishing, commercial fisher people or whatever about that sort of thing happening to their equipment at those depths? The one story that I heard, uh, Paul, was uh, shortly after May came out, um, the scientists in Japan went down to the Sea of Japan. They, they actually lowered a bait box and camera at the bottom of the Sea of Japan, and lo and behold, a shark came over and took the bait. And it was an undiscovered species of shark, uh, a bottom dweller, hmm. they called it. But it was about 30 feet long. So that was pretty amazing. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. You run into issues with... Uh... Um, Paul? Yes. Uh, if I may interrupt. Oh, I'm uh, sorry. We just, uh, it is time for our break. Yes, uh, our uh, producer has reminded me, because uh, I get into these conversations, I forget. See, we're going to take a brief break here. Uh, everyone, you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON 1240 in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. We'll be right back with our fascinating guest, Steve Alton. Stick with us. <laughs> Enjoy more summer fun. The Paw Sox return Monday, July 25th through Sunday, July 31st. On Friday, July 29th, Jim Rice and Wade Boggs will be on hand to be inducted into the new Paw Sox Hall of Fame, along with the late Ben Mondor. Then on Super Sox Saturday, we have Xander Bogart's bobbleheads. And on Sunday, a special visit from Wally the Green Monster. Visit PawSox.com. Paw Sox Baseball, a family fun tradition. Okay, and welcome back. We uh, have a number of charities Ben and I have adopted, uh, which we'll mention during our announcement period at the end. But right now, let's continue with our uh, fascinating conversation with Steve Alton, author of the Meg series and a number of other books as well. A new one just came out. Uh, and uh, Steve, why don't you, before we burn up this hour, why don't you tell us about your books, where people can find out more, your website, etc.? Yeah, uh, you can read about any of my books at my website, www.stevealton.com. Uh, the books are for sale at Amazon.com and online everywhere and also in all bookstores. Great. Okay. So let's move on to some more questions here. <clears throat> on the issue of science, um, if, I were, if I were a fiction writer, I would consider it a, a high compliment that scientists would even worry about my content. Okay, and the reason I like your books, and I'm a book editor, I'm a professional editor, and I I, uh, I like your books precisely because you do your scientific homework, and the facts that you uh, you may put it in a fictional context, but the facts are uh, are very very well researched, and I really respect that, and that's the reason you're on the show and have been before. So as far as science is concerned, 
uh, you, we mentioned the drawbacks of armchair science and the fact that people don't research the subject and will hurl down thunderbolts from on high about there not being uh, geothermal vents in the Mariana Trench before they actually knew this, this sort of thing, and so will will book reviewers. Uh, what, in your opinion, is the uh, is the drawback, both technologically uh, and attitudinally, of today's, let's just say, oceanography or marine biology? The drawback in in what? Well, in the sense of technologically, in other words, what <clears throat> what are we not technologically able to find out that might be there, uh, and also, <clears throat> sorry, also attitudinally in the sense of narrow-mindedness. I, well, I think the the, the one um, thing lacking in oceanography is funding. I mean, if we funded the oceanography the way we fund our military, we would find everything that's out there, and who knows, maybe a cure for cancer, assuming we want to find it. Yeah, right, okay. Well, that, that funding could be... But, I mean, the, the one limit in dealing with the Mariana Trench and other places in the abyss is that the, pr- the pressure is so incredible that it takes... It, it's easier to get up in this space than it is, is to the bottom of their own ocean. Sure, exactly. Well, the, one of the issues, not to get off topic, but one of the issues with funding that, that we see is that there's, there are politics in science as well. We find this with alternative archaeology, say, or even some areas, even of geology, uh, or even, even, uh, cosmology, because there's, there's a certain orthodoxy that is attached to certain sciences, and, uh, there's that, and on another level, <coughs> scientists from various disciplines at times don't seem to talk to each other. I find that in behavioral sciences, uh, versus transpersonal psychology, versus parapsychology, and versus physics, the physics of consciousness. So even, um, I suppose, even in the realm of the biological sciences, the same issues might exist. They go where the funding is, and they'll very often say what the funder wants. Now, now that's not to say all scientists are dishonest or skewed, but human nature being what it is, that's just my two cents, and Ben tends to agree about one some of the issues as far as... And I think that, that that betrays the spirit of science and often will create roadblocks to finding out things that aren't comfortable. You know, so whether so whether Meg is going to be, even if it's discovered, or whether they're going to admit it, you know, because of the economic um, repercussions might be fantastic. I mean, what what would happen economically to the fishing industry or to the tourism industry if this creature turned out to really be alive, yeah, I mean, it, you know, in the in the original book, Meg, that is one of the issues that are discussed. That's why I asked the question. I remember it from the book. You know, if, you, if you've got a, a megalodon that just surfaced, that's uh, going a little uh, oxygen crazy on on uh, the whale populations, then there is a a potential ecological factor. But in reality, I don't think it would be that big of a factor. Okay. Where would, and let's get back to our, we'll circle around to our original series of questions here. Where would Meg live today, and we're talking about the trenches with the warmer water, uh, but you also mentioned that there could be adaptations. It sounds as though Meg could live anywhere. I think it's more likely to live in the mid to deeper waters because if there were, uh, you know, a population of Megalodon out there in whatever form uh, it was in the shallows, we'd probably see it. Okay. Well, yeah, I think so. So Megalodon, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, was uh, the direct ancestor of the great white shark. Is that correct? Uh, it was its own species, but it, it had a lot. It, it probably was uh, a prehistoric great white 
to a certain extent because we have its teeth and the teeth of a modern-day gray white and the teeth of a megalodon are close to being identical other than the size. Okay. And a chevron that's in the megalodon. All right. Well, sharks are um, renowned for not having changed much since those days, at least the sharks that exist now. Um, I'm still wondering why Meg would have disappeared and uh, the great white continues. Pretty much Well, they were two different species, and, and um, but interesting enough, orca do hunt great whites with the same veracity they may have hunted megalodon. Hmm. Would they have hunted in packs? I mean, given the size? You mean a megalodon or an orca? Yeah, well, would an orca, would a bunch of orcas have hunted in packs against uh, a megalodon? Well, that's, that's pretty gutsy. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, observing orca as they hunt today, we we know that they hunt in packs today, so there's no reason that they wouldn't hunt in, in packs a million years ago. Okay, what about the uh, the fossil record? From the fossil record, what do we actually know about megalodon? Well, we have their teeth, and their teeth are serrated, and we. And we know that they were hunters. We know the size of the tooth matches the size of the megalodon, and that about an inch of tooth equals about 10 feet of megalodon. So we've got six to seven inch teeth, we've, so we've got a six to, 60 to 70 foot species. Okay. What about the, well, what about the DNA record? Uh, can, can DNA be, I know Jurassic Park notwithstanding, can, can DNA from some of these teeth uh, be accessed? And, what, and if so, what, what could it tell us? I'm not sure how much DNA could be accessed from a fossilized tooth, and, and yeah. because um, sharks have uh, skeletons that are, you know, uh, not made out of bone. The only, the only thing that we have, cartilage, doesn't last very long in seawater once a species dies. So uh, the only thing we really have is the fossilized teeth. Okay. All right. Uh, are you planning to write further books about megalodon? I've got one more Meg book in me called Meg Generations, and uh, that'll probably be coming out at sometime around when the movie comes out in 2018. Okay, 2018 movies. Okay, cool. Yeah, right. March of 2018. It's scheduled for right now. All right. Okay. Um, now I, there are there are fictional, well, as in, as in films, I've seen um, Megalodon hunting near the shore, and you don't think that that was realistic. Oh, no, that was realistic, absolutely. Really? We know they hunted near the shore. Oh, yeah, because we find their teeth near the shore, or what used to be shorelines, and, uh, you know, there's no doubt they hunted near the shore. Okay, uh, but you know, the water uh, would have to be pretty deep, I would think. Uh, yeah, but um, the reason that they hunted near the shore is because whales give birth to their young in the shallows, you know, in shallow lagoons. And, oh, okay. You know, that, uh, today, so that's why Megalon hunted near the shoreline. I didn't realize that. Okay, now megalodon teeth have been found uh, in areas that are now quite dry, and uh, perhaps our, uh, could you say something about what the, the evolution of the planet as far as oceans are concerned, because some of our listeners might not be familiar with that. that there are areas uh, that, that the, the planet didn't always look as it did today. There was the, the supercontinent of Pangaea, supposedly, and then the oceans were in different places, and uh, the, now what's now the Midwest, I guess, was was under an ocean at one time. Can you talk a bit about that, and uh, that being the reason why some of the uh, teeth are found in those areas? Well, you're going back way too far. Uh, oh, okay. existed about 30 million years ago, so what did the planet look like 30 million to 10 million to a million years ago? Well, there are parts of Florida that are covered with water a million years ago or 10 million years ago. There are parts of the... Uh, uh, 
uh, eastern seaboard uh, that were covered by water that far back. And, and so you're not looking at a, a drastic difference in time, but, you know, uh, geologically speaking, but still you're looking at millions of years ago. Okay. Uh, here's another question from a uh, listener. This is Dan. I presume Dennis does not say uh, the location of uh, Dennis here. However, uh, the question is, we hear that sharks are not particularly fond of the taste of people and sometimes think they are seals. Would the same be true for Megalodon? I don't know if you could get that, that specific about what Megalodon <laughs> likes to eat, but... I, mean, I, I, see, I can see the point of the question, that supposedly sharks uh, at least yeah, sometimes will make I, I a mistake sharks, when they eat people. Sharks investigate things because with their teeth, I mean, they, they don't have any hands. So the only thing they have to investigate the substances with their teeth. So there's there's uh, bites that are hungry bites and there's bites that are investigated bites, both of which can be lethal to a man. But um, sharks need the blubbery content of things like sea lions and, and, and seals and sea elephants and whales to, you know, get the most out of their energy. Man is not, although with the exception of some rather obese people, <laughs> Which you don't find too many obese people surfing. Yeah. Uh, you know, man is a little bit too thin-skinned for a, megalo, uh, a great white to be putting it at the top of its menu. As far as a megalon tasting a human, uh, its jaws were so big. You know, you're talking about ten feet jaws with seven, six to seven inch teeth. If a megalon tastes you, you're probably going down its gullet. Yeah, I would think so. Um, well, yeah, I'll tell you, Steve, you got them going which today. Many of them, which many of them do in the Make series. Yes. Okay. So you got them going today. Graphically. <laughs> yes. Steve from Uxbridge, Massachusetts, right here in our listening area. Uh, Steve would like to know, in accordance with Paul and Ben's multiverse theories, is it possible that Megalodon could come and go through portals in space-time without actually <laughs> existing in our time, much as... The Loch Ness monster might do. <laughs> I don't expect you. I don't flatter myself that you've read any of my books, Steve. But I mean, I, I don't know if you are prepared to answer that kind of a question or not. I thought that was ine- inevitable from some of the listeners today because that's what we talk about a lot as as well, a possibility written, for cryptids. I have written the Loch, which is about the Loch Ness monster, and the sequel Vostok, which came out recently, which is about uh, Lake Vostok in Antarctica. But uh, and there are different time portals that are discussed in Bostock, but, uh, you know, as far as Megalodon existing in other multi-universes, you know, I guess that's possible, but uh, we tend to deal with the ones that we find in this universe. (laughs) Right. Well, the, the, the theory is that, that, you know, Bigfoot and all these guys, you know, we, we tend to investigate these large flap areas like in the end of the 1970s i was wondering why you know when i was investing because i was long before ben came along wondering why you'd investigate their you know, quote-unquote haunted houses and you'd end up with uh ufos and uh, people seeing little grays and things like this and even bigfoot all this stuff seems to occur similarly in um certain concentrated areas at times and so hence the 
the hypothesis that maybe you're dealing with the intersecting parallel realities a la quantum mechanics and the you know multiple worlds and all this business and uh, so we've expressed the opinion on the show maybe some of these cryptids because you don't you usually don't you don't find bodies you find hairs now and then of these things uh or maybe in the case of um but i i've never heard of, of anybody finding a, a marine animal uh, remains or anything like this, uh, or, or a megalodon being sighted uh, as clearly as people have seen some of these other maritime or other creatures. So I guess that that's the background of the uh, of the question. So um, let's move on from that and be that as it may. What what uh, what do you do to research? Now your doctorate is in education. What do you do to research? The science on the, obviously you keep up with the science as it develops, but what, uh, are the particular scientists you rely upon for information, particular institution, institutions, uh, how do you bone up and how, and how do you keep up with the, the marine science? Uh, well, when I'm writing a Megalodon book or a lock book or something like that, you know, I'm, I'm engaged in the marine sciences, uh, through the internet. Uh, there are some go-to people that I've, I've used over the years uh, and their theories, but, um, you know, usually it's, it's the science at hand, and the Internet is a terrific tool for any writer, you know, to be able to be able to pull details about the places and things, and, and, and you know, so the research is, goes on and on. By the way, getting back to that last question, I do believe in UFOs. I've had a UFO sighting myself. My wife and I had one years ago, and, and it happened about the time we were, two days before we were meet with Dr. Stephen Greer, who I'm now writing a couple of books with. Okay. Excellent. Oh, we have another question. This is from Dan with two N's. Uh, and this Dan writes, uh, Paul, I am wondering if the ocean's salinity has changed over the millennia and if that might have had any effect on Meg. Uh, well, it probably hasn't changed much over the last 30 million years, uh, although I'm not sure what the ice ages, the last ice ages effect on the salinity would be, but uh, I would think that Megalodon, like other fish, would be able to adapt to that. Okay, because it wouldn't, it wouldn't change that drastically. Um, well, that, 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 uh, that sort of begs the question that uh, with... Uh, climate change, whatever the nature of that might be, there are uh, there's some evidence that, that that with the melting of freshwater ice at the poles, the salinity of the ocean would be decreased. Well, that that is a definite reality that we need to be extremely frightened about because of, because as you say, first of all, climate change is happening. Oh, it's always happening. Change, yeah, any climate change deniers out there are probably linked to big oil. Because it's certainly not linked to any scientific fact, but uh, climate change is a real thing. And what's dangerous around climate change is that with the melting of the poles, like you mentioned, uh, you know the uh, the uh, seawater is inundated by fresh water, and that does stop uh, you know the uh, circulation of, of warm water across our planet. And if that happens, we will be hit with another ice age, and it will be a fierce one. And you know. I don't know if man could survive that. Oh, well, yeah, well, that's an open question. But what about Meg? I mean, is Meg frightened of uh, of this sort of thing? I mean, what? what? I don't think Meg's aware. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I'm, I'm being facetious, of course. Yeah. Climate change, you know. Well, they might be but, more, uh, marine life might be more aware than we are. 
I mean, when well, you think you look about in Florida, you know, I heard recently about a horrible situation that's happening right now because uh, uh, Lake Okeechobee was inundated with, uh, you know, the Lake Okeechobee was released into canals mm. and and uh, the uh, pesticides that are so prevalent in the sugar farm in Florida just basically wiped out all the species of fish. Oh, that's that a disaster. So, yeah. You know, were these fish aware about what was going on in Lake Okeechobee? Well, I guess they took the brunt of it. Yeah. But the... Uh, very but dangerous situation. Any decrease in salinity, uh, w- would this be accelerate based on Den's question, uh, would this sort of uh, melting of the poles accelerate salinity to the point where something like Meg couldn't adapt quickly enough? These are, I don't know, all completely theoretical. Well, I mean, you, you, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, let, let's not go there. <laughs> okay. Well, if we find one floating on the hopefully I mean, we won't. you know, is, it, is the infiltration of the North Atlantic Current with freshwater a danger? It's a danger to the entire planet and everything that lives on this planet. Meteorologically so, as well. I don't, I don't think we're worried about whether a megalodon, if it's still alive, is going to worry about that. I think all of us need to worry about that. Okay. All right. Including Dan with two N's. You're right. Yeah, Dan, Dan with one N and Dan with two N's. <laughs> okay. All right. So just um, to sum up, what would you say are the chances, if you were to give a percentage, like 50% chance or whatever, that uh, just Meg actually exists somewhere on the planet, what would your percentage be? And what would you say the numbers, the population might be? Again, uh, totally I mean, theoretical, I, but. If I, unless I'm a hypocrite, which I try not to be, to be able to face anything like that, you know, a percentage based upon evidence that I don't have would make me a hypocrite, so I, I couldn't give you a percentage. Okay, well, I respect that. Uh, too, all too many people would, so so that that's good for you. Okay, excellent. Steve, why don't you name uh, your five novels again and your website once more so people can, in case they didn't hear it previously. Well, the five Meg novels are, the first one is Meg, then The Trench, then Meg Primal Waters, Meg Hell's Aquarium, and the new one, Meg Night Stalkers. But you definitely want to start with the brand new Meg, which is being rewritten, which has a surf on the cover of it about to be eaten by a Megalodon. And that's out in paperback everywhere. Excellent. Uh, my other books are all available on my website. I've written 16 thrillers and a comedy. Okay, very good. And certainly, uh, I'm going to get it because, uh, as I said, it was, uh, the first Meg was one of my favorite books, and I can't wait to read the next one. Okay, very good. Steve, Alden, thank you so much. Uh, we'll be in touch, and uh, best of luck with the next book. And uh, I'm sure that's not even required to uh, wish you good luck because that's uh, almost pointless because you, you're a terrific writer. Talk to you soon. Oh, I need all the luck I can get, believe me, Paul. <laughs> okay, very good. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. Okay. Steve Alton, everybody, check it out, stevealton.com. Okay, I think we have time for one question. We have so many questions piling up. I hate to cut interviews short, but we just, you know, we don't have enough open line shows going on here. So uh, I'm going to try and take one question uh, uh, here. This is from Shannara. And uh, Shannara says, um, uh, on your next open lines, we'll just do this today, could you please elaborate on what you think of EC President uh, Jean-Claude Juncker's comments that aliens are watching us? And here's his report. This is the uh, president of the uh, European Union. You need to know that this is the the quote, which I looked up, and he supposedly really did say this. Uh, You need to know that those who observe us from afar are worried. 
I have seen, listened, and heard many leaders of other planets, and they are very worried because they wonder about the course the EU will follow. So we have to reassure both the Europeans and those who observe us from afar. I'm still kind of researching that, but apparently he did say this. Uh, I don't really get it. I mean, is is this is this uh, gone politically haywire to say that uh, people from the Pleiades are worried about uh, the the Brits exiting EU? I mean, I, I I don't really understand this. Um, maybe it's something was lost in 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 translation, but uh, I Shinara, I I don't really know how to respond to that. Um, I. People are entitled to their opinions. I, I know that Reagan, President Reagan, once addressed the United Nations and said, "Can you imagine how much we would be united if a threat from outside this is on paraphrasing, of course, a threat from outside this planet were confronting us?" And everybody said, "Aha! You know, Ronald Reagan believes in aliens." I think I always took that as as theoretical. I mean, as he's right. Imagine how quickly we would all come together and forget all our differences uh, if uh, there was an alien threat, okay? Um, which is, you know, anything is possible. There's no reason to believe. I mean, I think it's, it's very rare to find anyone who doesn't believe in extraterrestrial life anymore. Um, ben and I uh, take the position that you have not only that, but you've got life everywhere and every when of all different kinds, all possibilities, between worlds as well as in them, and uh, we talk about that in lots of other shows, but um, I, I just really don't know what um, uh, President Juncker was, was uh, thinking here by saying this, and I don't, so I, I, that's really about the best answer I can give at this point to uh, Shannara's question. I just, I'm just as mystified pretty much as everyone else was about this, and uh, I'm, I'm currently researching to see if he added to that or explained it, and I haven't been able to find anything so far, but if we do find anything additional on that, we will address it in our next Open Line show, uh, in, which I believe is in two weeks. So, that be that as it may, let's get into our long list of announcements here. Okay, uh, we have uh, <coughs> certainly the, our first, uh, next public event that's coming up, uh, Ben and I will both be there, that is in Exeter, New Hampshire. Saturday and Sunday, September 3rd and 4th. Uh, that is the Exeter UFO Festival. Uh, it's a really, really fun annual event sponsored by the Exeter Kiwanis Club. And uh, Bill Smith up there does a terrific job for the Kiwanis organizing it. Uh, we just have a wonderful time. It's a real uh, fun family event. Uh, the dogs, uh, the local dogs dress up like aliens and, and all the, they have a parade. It's just it's a lot of fun. And uh, it, the benefit is to local children's charities. So uh, there's a lot of good stuff uh, that comes from it. The whole town, the merchants, as I say, the dogs, the restaurants, the bars, everybody gets into the act, and it's it's really great. Along with ourselves, uh, speakers will include Richard Dolan, Kathleen Martin, Denise Stoner, Larry Holcomb, Stephen Mather-Lees, Peter Robbins, and Ryan Mullahay, almost all of whom you've heard on this show one time or another, multiple times. Uh, we ourselves will present a new talk on more strange connections, UFOs, cryptids, and ghosts. And on Sunday, uh, in our usual time slot here on ON1240, we will do a live broadcast from Exeter Town Hall. Uh, and uh, all the event speakers will be there in a panel, and we'll have a live audience. And it will be a first for our show in uh, almost 10 years on the air now. And uh, we're really looking forward to that, as long as Ben learns how to use the equipment. 
Now, if you can't make it to the event, certainly listen into the show on September 4th, at noon to 1 p.m. here on 01 1240. Uh, and if you are outside our listening area, we suggest, particularly in the UK, we suggest that you use the simple radio app by Streamer. It's, uh, works on most devices, and we've had a lot of good feedback on how people who couldn't previously listen to the show live uh, could do it with that app. Now, on Friday and Saturday, October 7th and 8th, October is going to be gangbusters for us. Uh, the 7th and 8th will be at the Greater uh, New England UFO Conference at City Hall in Lemonster, Massachusetts. Uh, it'll, we've been there, I think it's our third or fourth year in a row uh, since we've been there since it began, and uh, we'll be speaking there as well. Uh, then on Sunday, October 16th, uh, join us at Roger Williams Park in Providence, Rhode Island, for the Taking Steps for Crohn's and Colitis Charity Walk. Uh, we're going to um, do a live broadcast from there as well. That'll be our second time in the fall uh, to do that. And uh, we're going to try to get one or two of our uh, headliners uh, from the show to uh, come to the walk. Several have agreed to do so. Shane Searway will be there. Bill Hall, author Bill Hall, uh, will be joining us. And we're going to do um, a live broadcast from there. And this is a great, great charity. So um, whether you listen to the show or not, uh, or if you can join, if you live in the area or can get here, join Team Behind the Paranormal uh, to just donate uh, or to join us at the walk. You can see the link at BehindTheParanormal.com. And um, we're going to try to get links uh, put up elsewhere. We'll let you know about that. But it, it's, we'll, we'll make it easy for you to at least donate, even if it's 5 bucks, you know, whatever. Do what you can. And if you can join us, it's great. It's 2 or 3 miles long. Uh, do it, as much of that as you can. And it begins at 10 a.m. And, again, that's October 16th. Uh, be more information here on ON twelve forty as the date approaches. Uh, the station is really behind us on this, and there'll be a lot of promos. So, as, uh, on Tuesday, October eighteenth, that's two days later, we'll be speaking at the monthly uh, MUFON event in the Philadelphia area, and that will be at uh, six thirty p.m. at the the uh, Tredyffrin Public Library, Upper Gulf Road, Wayne, Pennsylvania. And uh, you can visit our site behindtheparanormal.com for details on that. Uh, also, MainlineMUFON.com. Okay. Meanwhile, you can uh, find links to all those charities and all those events and, of course, the uh, um, information about the show and uh, now over almost 700 free podcasts, free, free recorded shows from both ON 1240 and our four-and-a-half-year run on CBS Radio and special shows and podcasts at BehindTheParanormal.com. Check those out. And, again, they're all free. Uh, our forthcoming book, uh, Ben and I uh, are the authors of, uh, Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong, is now available for pre-order on the publisher's website. Uh, that's shifferbooks.com. Just do a search on Behind the Paranormal or use the link on the BehindTheParanormal.com site. And it's also available for pre-order on Amazon.com. Uh, the book is slated for release by Schiffer Publishing in January, and there will be a release party of some kind. Uh, we have been talking about that, but we still don't know any details. Uh, we're conferring the publisher on that, but it will probably be in our broadcast area here in northern Rhode Island. So please come to that once we find out what it's going to be and where it's going to be. You can find my other books on Amazon.com, Amazon Kindle, Barnes & Noble Nook. But if you buy them directly at BehindTheParanormal.com, we have a nice online bookstore there, which also sells T-shirts with our motto, uh, and that one of our mottos anyway, and says, explaining the paranormal is not the problem, it's handling the explanation. So you can get that shirt. Uh, but anyway, I'll sign the books for you if you buy them there, and you will help us keep all those recorded shows free. 
Also on our website, you'll find direct links to several of the charities that uh, Ben and I have adopted, and that includes usacares.org, doing great things for wounded veterans, and Canadian Veterans Advocacy, same thing, doing uh, wonderful uh, things legally and legislatively in Canada for veterans there. Uh, also, Youth Mentoring Connection in Los Angeles, uh, doing great things for at-risk youth in that uh, in that big city uh, in some of the uh, most challenged neighborhoods. So youthmentoring.org and Help for Haiti. Dot com, also a great charity, uh, many of whose leaders we know, so it's, it's really legit. Okay, so we're pretty much out of time here. So next week, stay tuned, and we'll have Adam Tomlinson for a look at strange experiences with shadow people. In the meantime, have a great week. We'll talk to you then. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with